Welcome to Oncology Morning Commute, a review of the science behind multi-cancer early detection tests. Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from GRAIL. In the second episode of our podcast series on early cancer detection, Dr. Christopher Mason and Dr. Pashtun Cassie take a closer look at multi-cancer early detection tests and the groundbreaking Pathfinder study that so far is showing impressive data. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash cancer early detect two. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Mason is a professor of genomics, physiology, and biophysics in the Department of Physiology and Biophysics at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York City. Dr. Cassie is director of colon cancer research at Weill Cornell Medicine and director of liquid biopsy research at the Englander Institute of Precision Medicine, also at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York City. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Mason will begin our discussion. All right. Uh, well, welcome back, Dr. Kashi, to our discussion on multi-cancer early detection testing. Well, thanks so much for having me. Uh, so we are going to jump back into this fascinating field and the development of the technologies that enable us to pick up not just one or two cancers, but sometimes several dozen cancers with one test. And, you know, I want to jump into a little bit about how they work and, you know, what, what's happening once you get the, the blood drawn. So, you know, as I think most people in the audience know, of course, you can go get blood drawn for all sorts of work on uh, what cells are in your blood or biochemical profiles, you know, as a general measure of health. And so the, the vision that's come up for these multi-cancer early detection tests is that anytime you go get a blood drawn for a normal physical, you could potentially, especially if you're high risk, throw this in and has to be kind of the standard of care where you just want to keep an eye out for anything that might be an early stage cancer. And the way that works is because, you know, floating in that tube of blood, think about when you go get your blood drawn and you squeeze your fist and you look down at your arm, or maybe some of you look away, it depends on who you are, but you're getting the blood drawn. Uh, and into that tube are, of course, cells and of your blood, your platelets, you can see uh, antibodies that are there, white blood cells, dendritic cells, all these different kinds of immune and functional cells in your body. But also uh, floating in the bloodstream, in the plasma, you'll also uh, see fragments of DNA that are sometimes still packaged up in what's called chromatin, where there's DNA mixed with proteins that are still packaged together. And they're stable just long enough so they could be picked up and you basically take that tube and you can see what's essentially inside your cells versus what's floating in your plasma or also in other small pockets, what are called exosomes. But basically inside your blood is this entire really snapshot of every tissue in your body because all of your cells are, are dying uh, and then being reborn throughout all of the different organs and tissues of your body. And this is a continual diurnal process that you're shedding cells, shedding DNA, shedding RNA and proteins. And in that tube of blood though, is this really whole body molecular scan that anything that was recently exuded or decayed or died and went into your bloodstream, you pick up this snapshot. And what you do is grab those fragments of DNA. Uh, you can, we'll talk about other methods as well, but you, a lot of the tests, just look at the DNA, grab them and purify the DNA and sequence it, and then can take those fragments and map it back to what is the called the human genome reference, which is 
uh, where in where do you normally see open or closed DNA in different cells in your body? Uh, what uh, this is called epigenetic signature of the state of those cells. And when you map it back to the different areas of your body, you can tell which cells were contributing that signature. Was it from pancreas? Was it from your uh, bone marrow? Was it from, uh, it could be an ovary, it could be any part of your body that's contributing little bits of DNA. And you build this whole body molecular scan and you also then look for mutations. Is it the, when you look at the A, C, G, and T of the actual genetic code, if it looks the same as, as your reference genome or doesn't look like it has any mutation, then that's fine. But if you see mutations and you see enough of them, you can start to infer that you, you have mutations in a gene uh, that might be give you a risk for cancer or maybe it represents the cancer. Uh, and you can to tell to a large degree where it came from in your body uh, based on where it lands in the genome. And also the fragment size tells you information about uh, potentially how aggressive a cancer might be, what's called fragmentomics. And so these are some of the basic the chemistry and, and functional work that goes into the test. But, uh, you know, so Dr. Kashi, that's a, with that as a backdrop, you know, what, what's, what's exciting you the most in terms of, you know, once we get these profiles, we do the sequencing, we do the mapping and the alignment. Uh, what, what do you uh, have been, what have you been so ex the most excited to see in clinic? And what do you see so far for, say, insurance companies looking at, uh, getting excited to maybe do coverage? Are they waiting back a little bit to see how it goes? What, what have you seen uh, in the clinic so far? I think as an oncologist, unfortunately, we often see the late stage cancers where it's already having an impact and often sometimes, uh, mm. or it's not a curable scenario anymore. So the promise of these tests uh, going into early detection or screening, uh, I think that's what's uh, really fascinating and brings up a huge promise because uh, it can do what they call like the stage shift, meaning that as opposed to catching a cancer in latter stages when it's already uh, not curable in some scenarios, if it's stage three or four, versus if you caught the same cancer at a very early stage, uh, uh, the, the outcomes or the odds of achieving cure, or as they say, five-year survival in terms of being alive, you know, the, the, the they are very different. So I, I'm more excited about the fact that these assays that initially were crudely looking at uh, mutations and uh, DNA are now looking at these other aspects of the cancer, like you pointed out in terms of methylation and other signals that not only point out to the presence or absence of cancer, but also with these different patterns and signatures, you can also identify where uh, these cancers are coming from to a fair degree of accuracy. Yeah, and I think that that is what's extraordinary is that, um, you know, each one of these fragments, of course, has the genetic code, but has what's called methylcytosine, which is when you have a, a methyl group attached to it. But other studies have also looked at hydroxylmethylcytosine, which is just uh, adding another hydroxyl group uh, to that methyl methylation signature. And what I think is extraordinary is we've begun to tease out, as you were just saying, that there's all this additional information, not just about the mutations or the fragment size and where it maps, but then you know, these small chemical tweaks on each molecule, it themselves can tell you whether it came from uh, really an open or closed part of the genome or something that had uh, a signature of rapid cell division indicating it might be a more aggressive cancer. And so you get these really interesting signatures that have, uh, been, have really become more, more prominent, I think, in a lot of the tests on the market and a lot more research into this space as well. And so... To your point regarding the aggressiveness, I think one aspect that I often like to highlight besides the test, I think it's also important to remember what's happening before 
whatever tumor-derived um, content is going into the bloodstream, going into the tube of blood, uh, the shedding, the aggressiveness of the cancer, the type of cancer that could be different across different tumor types. And some of these studies are also showing that the, the same assays were having a different performance. So it's not just how good the tests are. We have to kind of put that into context with which, uh, what cancers are being detected, what cancers are being missed, what cancers are creating a similar signal um, as, as, as noted in the, the, some of the studies with one of the multi-cancer early detection assays, cancers that were, for example, driven by uh, a similar uh, mechanism uh, were also giving, not surprisingly, similar signals. And for those who are following the development of uh, these assays, uh, I, I would like to point out that these assays are continuously being refined and uh, the data that you might be looking at from a few years ago may or may not be relevant yeah. to how that assay may perform right now in clinic. Yeah, I think because there's a continual uh, improvement of like, the assays, which is great, but then it makes it hard to compare the, uh, a bit on more on the science as well. So you know, a lot of people think of these fragments of DNA, but often they are either captured, you know, like a Velcro where you want to grab a piece of DNA before you sequence it. So there's an enrichment process for some of the tests on the market. Other ones do an amplification where you actually target it with primers in, or basically a way to also, in a sense, add little mini Velcro to your molecule and amplify it to make many copies. But those are two different protocols that have pros and cons themselves. And so what you'll pick up, uh, you know, what today might be a panel that has 50 genes in it. But if you come back to the same company two years later, they might have a panel that has 280 genes. And so you have a lot more. And, but it's basically, it has different probes, different molecules that are doing this Velcro and capture, and there are different amplifications. So yeah, the, the tests do change. Usually they get better, but sometimes you, you may no longer have a gene that's present in the panel if it turns out it was too difficult. So that, you know, that this is a continual uh, improvement, a uh, constant gardening that has to be done to make sure the tests get better. Uh, but that does change how, how well you can uh, compare them across time. The other thing that's, I think, really interesting in terms of the science and the biology of what's happening is when you take the liquid biopsy, when you take this test, what you'll see will depend on what happened recently to that patient. So if they had recently uh, and been doing a lot of exercise, you'll see a lot more vasculature uh, that has been in motion versus someone's been much more sessile. Uh, they wouldn't have, have, have much blood literally moving, which could change what you'll pick up. Or if someone just had surgery, that will lice a lot of the cells that were right near the point of the surgery. So suddenly you can see a lot more of the tumor, but then it can go away quickly. And then, uh, so you'll get a discordance between what's in the blood versus what's maybe in the tumor later on, but you'll get a lot more concordance and see it right near the point of surgery. But you basically, you know, this question of which cells are being broken open and lysed and dying at different points and what you're doing with your life, or did you, uh, you know, did you just have a wrestling match basically, or did you get into a bar fight? I, I actually have no clinical correlates to bar fights and cancer detection. That's just off the top of my head, but it is a factor that may have some role in terms of how many cells have just recently lysed in your body. So, um, very important aspect. And like you mentioned, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, uh, before even the analysis goes into the test, uh, what we call like the pre-analytical variables, yeah. meaning things that can affect the performance of the test, you know, you brought up the surgery aspect that's very relevant, you know, when we are looking for leftover cancer or what we call minimal residual or molecular residual disease and the immediate post-operative period, there's a lot of background noise from all yeah. the healing that your body's undergoing. So, so you're looking for the needle in the haystack and the, it's a bigger haystack in the immediate post-operative period. And, uh, you know, as these assays are being used for screening and detection, 
Um, just like in sometimes, you know, with these imaging modalities like PET CT scan and stuff, if somebody just had an infection or is undergoing through some yeah. other medical problem, we often say that's probably not a good time to get a PET CT scan because you may get a false signal. I think we would also learn over time as these tests uh, and these trials and ongoing studies mature as to what real world considerations need to be factored into as you're drawing, getting the blood drawn, uh, you know, as you mentioned, things simple as an exercise or somebody who had a smoke or even the time of the day, there's a lot of interesting mm -hmm. data and literature about variations into this that can happen. But uh, despite that, the fact that you can detect these things non-invasively through simple blood draws, I think it's it's very uh, fascinating and promising. Yeah, and it's this thing to the, like the ease of which you can do it, getting a blood draw, I mentioned earlier, from anywhere. But this does also link to, uh, I mean, we'll jump, I think, back into some of the study statistics that have come out recently. But just to jump on the point of, of the ease is if you think of uh, patients in rural settings or lower economic status, people with lower resources, less resources available to them, they, um, you know, it, it is nice if you can just uh, stop by a place really close to your house get a blood draw or put it in the mail, or even some of the testing I've done was a tube came in, in the mail and then I went to a phlebotomist and put it back in the mail. Uh, but I even just recently saw um, a non-invasive prenatal testing test came out this week uh, that you can take at home, right? So I think there's, there is a, a, a nice burst of convenience happening that will, I think will help for accessibility uh, to, to these tests. Of course, they're still a bit expensive for most people, um, you know, and so I think that that hopefully will come down. But we've seen on the technical side, the cost of sequencing is coming down. The cost of the, the these assays are now getting much more standardized. And so the, the tubes are now being made uh, by the tens of millions, so they're getting cheaper at, at scale. And so I think we will start to see more of, of deployment and ease of access in the, in the coming years. And you know, with the different healthcare models and systems, you know, there are uh, parts of the world where uh, it is not the insurance or the healthcare or the whatever health system that pays for the test. And it might be something that the patient uh, may be factoring into out of pocket as, 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 as we go along and develop these technologies, like you mentioned, as these things get cheaper, you know, I do think it will fill a void. And, and for the existing tests, as, as some of the data and the papers also cite uh, correctly, that, you know, for the ones where there's existing assays available, you know, it's not a question of either or. I think it will complement each other. Yeah. Uh, but for the far, far majority of it is nothing. I think it opens up uh, an avenue for screening early detection for a lot of these aggressive cancers that don't have a cure in latter phases of uh, diagnosis. Yeah, yeah, there could be. There are there are very small sequencers that it can fit in even in your pocket. So someday, maybe in the future, you could uh, draw your own blood, sequence it in your own kitchen countertop, and then get a report. Uh, but that's probably a bit more futuristic. Uh, but but of course, I think that'd be wonderful. But um, in any case, the um, but that would definitely not be a CLIA test. It would be a, <laughs> a homebrew test. Uh, so you'd worry about accuracy and, and thoroughness there, of course. But the um, but I want to jump, uh, you know, in, in some time we've got left in this podcast a little bit, is to some of the studies that have come out that have been, that have really started to examine at a large scale what, what we think we can learn when we start to have tens of thousands uh, of patients that have been examined. Uh, and we're seeing, you know, large international uh, efforts to, to track uh, what we can pick up uh, by looking at people longitudinally over multiple years uh, in some cases. And so uh, one of them in particular is a trial uh, that was uh, just recently released. Uh, it's called the Prospective Pathfinder Study, which uh, did use a blood-based multi-cancer early detection test and looked at uh, early cancer screening for over 6,600 individuals that were at least 50 years old 
uh, and uh, were at a higher risk for cancer. So they use some of the methods we just described here in terms of sequencing and mapping those fragments of DNA to look for the cancer signal origin. We're trying to figure out the, the, basically where in the body the cancer is based on this test. Uh, and you know, basically what they found was um, they wanted to uh, determine, how, well, how, first question is, how many people actually uh, had something that looked like it was a positive hit? And so I, you know, basically out of those you know, 6,600 people, uh, there were 92 participants uh, who actually um, you know, tested positive. And so this gives you, you know, some you'll see about one, what well, we've heard in the literature, about 1%, 1.3% of people you'll get you know, something if there's a hit and say, okay, well, of, that, of those patients, how many of those 92 uh, were actually diagnosed uh, with cancer? And of those, it, it was about a, th a third, 35, that were diagnosed with cancer uh, through the follow-up. And I think really the most exciting thing about the study is that of, of those those 35, narrowing it down to just those 35 people who had confirmed cancer, 71% of them were of the cancer types that really don't have routine cancer screening. You think of like mammograms or PSA for prostate cancer. For a lot of the cancers that were picked up, majority of them, these are there are not routine screening options for those cancers. So I think this highlights uh, some of the value. And I think one of the really exciting things also is that uh, for those confirmed cases, 48% of them were stage one or stage two cancer. So meaning we could pick it up earlier. And so, uh, so that's, I think, some of the exciting overviews, but there's also questions about, um, you know, what's the false positive rates and, and uh, what do we see for the positive predictive value? And what we saw in the study was a positive predictive value of about 40% and about a 1% false positive rate. So I'm curious, uh, Dr. Kashi, what do you think about in terms of the, these rates and what you see for other tests? And I think they've been getting better in the field, but, uh, what have you seen so far for your in a clinic? Well, I think you bring up an important point uh, regarding the results, and especially you know it's it's uh, somewhat um, uh, concerning and sobering to note that you know we only have screening for yeah. four or five yeah. different cancers, and also those screening modalities are not necessarily perfect or convenient. For example, colonoscopy for colon cancer or mammograms for breast cancer. So, the blood-based testing detecting cancer for obviously complementary for the ones that is existing screening, but also, as you, as you mentioned, uh, in uh, the patients where they had detected, um, a lot of these uh, were for cancers where there's no screening at all. Uh, I do think it's of value to note, as, as we were discussing earlier too, that there is continuous uh, learning and refinement that's happening with these assays uh, uh, in some of the initial work published uh, from regarding the study from the same group. Uh, They've noted uh, how refinements for site of origin were happening. Uh, in some cases, you know, they, they haven't uh, had uh, a diagnosis yet. And is that still because we haven't found the cancer yet? Or is that truly a false positive rate? Um, in the big scheme of things, like you mentioned, I think these numbers are of value to note that, you know, if you are to implement such a set of a testing platform, you are looking at you know no more than one to two percent of patients who would have a positive signal that would need downstream uh, further testing and evaluation uh, and some of the subsequent studies that will integrate um, uh, downstream testing. I think those are also questions and things to ponder from a payer perspective. That obviously it's not just the test that you're paying for, but then you are doing to do follow-up workup and evaluation or further testing in the ones who are positive. So. What would the map look like there? I think those are bigger questions that the community and, and CI and the science, if the community is trying to answer. Yeah, because you really want to gauge you know, the utility, what's the 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 bang for your buck, or what, you know the efficiency of the test, and 
uh, we can't spend every dollar for every test on every patient, but you know, really figure who's the who's the high risk uh, or medium or low risk, and even tailor. I think some of the these screening uh, tests and these early cancer detection tests uh, towards the best the best test for the, and the best frequency for the right patient. Uh, great. So just in the last couple of minutes, uh, there's one other study I wanted to mention, which is from uh, the Chengung Medical Foundation, where uh, they also were looking at uh, how many malignancies get detected by having these uh, cancer screening tests. And I think what's fascinating there is we see different different cancers have a uh, higher or lower sensitivity in even being able to be picked up. Uh, and, and, you know, for example, prostate cancer uh, compared to pancreatic cancer, those, uh, you know, the, both have pretty high sensitivity, whereas uh, if you look at head and neck cancer uh, or kidney cancers uh, are look on the lower end from their study, uh, or even skin cancer. But, you know, some of them make obvious sense, though. Skin cancer and melanoma might be in the outside uh, of the epidermis and not be as picked up as readily because there's not as much vasculature pulling uh, what might be fragments of that uh, cancer uh, into the blood that you could be picked up. But, um, but I'm curious here in the last minute or so, any thoughts on the heterogeneity of detection between different cancer types and uh, maybe any ways we could get around that, say, frequency of testing or other modalities? Yeah, the, the study you mentioned, I think that's uh, not entirely uh, surprising or new to us. Uh, you know, in oncology, we use these tumor markers or which are often what we call glycoproteins, uh, uh, like the uh, ones that they used in the study with alpha fetoprotein, PSA, CEA. So, uh, we know that certain tumors and often tumors that are from glandular origin or that make glands uh, like uh, pancreas or colon or breast, that they often make these uh, markers, uh, but they're not uh, entirely specific nor sensitive. Uh, so even today in our clinic, uh, probably uh, half the people had some sort of tumor markers checked. So uh, we don't check it for every single type of cancer and they are not necessarily elevated in some cancers like skin cancer and stuff. So that's not surprising. You don't see the performance of that uh, in, let's say, the head and neck cancer or uh, mm -hmm. some of the ovarian cancer group. But like, for example, the same CEA is elevated in breast cancer, stomach cancer, colon cancer, and it's not entirely unique to one cancer. So uh, I think their strength, I guess, was looking at all these different um, common glycoproteins together. But uh, building upon this, I, I can what I can tell you is following this field, uh, there are larger efforts, uh, not just looking at methylated DNA and other aspects mm -hmm. that we mentioned, but uh, looking at not just these seven or eight or 10 um, glycoproteins, but looking at hundreds of these in a very small amount of sample using bigger platforms, which are already kind of uh, in study and we presented some of the data as well with some of these collaborations. So uh, it's, I think it's a little crude and very different approach to uh, the methylated platform. Uh, and, uh, you know, has, has, is of value to see how it could further complement the existing platforms. Yeah, that's a great uh, summary point. I think we know that you know, it could be proteins, could be metabolites, could be uh, mutations. Uh, all these different uh, modalities of biology are there and can tell us something about the cancer, if it's there or, or its progression or what's happening in the body. You know, every every molecule tells a story. We just have to listen to it and then hopefully use it. So I think um, that was a great uh, closing thoughts. Uh, and um, thank you very much, Dr. Kosti, for uh, joining us today in our oncology morning commute. And to wherever your commute takes you in the audience. Uh, 
I hope you don't have any mutations more than you did five minutes ago, or that if you do, that we can pick them up quite readily. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash cancer early detect two. You can find all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today.